0: I invite you now to stand with me as we read verses 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, it's truth its authority, and how it speaks into our lives. I pray today that this word will do precisely what it is intended to do. Bring hope and encouragement as we wait on the return of our Lord and the resurrection of the dead. Father, we also ask that you would guide our church you would guide our elders, that you would guide those who've been selected from our congregation to assist in this search process for a new pastor of adult discipleship and outreach at our church. Help us to not get ahead of you. We pray, God, that you would begin to prepare a man's heart to serve in this role and that you would lead us clearly to him. And that by doing so, we would be even we would have an even greater witness in our community and that we would be better at fulfilling our mission of making disciples that make disciples here at Nansman River Baptist Church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, Future Resurrection. Many of you have been asking as we have been progressing through this series, through First and Second Thessalonians, which we've entitled The Past, Present, and Future, you've asked me, when are we getting to the future? We've dealt a lot with the past and the present, as Paul has dealt with uh, regeneration of uh, of dead men and women into alive brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, over the last numerous weeks, talking about our sanctification in Christ. Well, here we are, finally, this sermon and next week, and there'll be two more when we get to 2 Thessalonians, that specifically deals with the future. Today, it is the future Resurrection. Now, I I wanna set some parameters for us if I could this morning because some of you are gonna want me to say some things that I'm not going to say. Number one, I only have about 40 or 45 minutes. It's the amount of time I have on Sunday mornings. And so I can't say everything there is to say about the future, but I wouldn't even want to. My goal in here, let me just express to you what I seek to do every week. Maybe you're new with us. One of our core values at our church is that we value uh, expositional preaching in our corporate gatherings. That is a very specific style of preaching where we come to a text, and as the preacher, my job is to explain the text and bring the meaning to bear on our lives. That's what I hope to do every single week as we walk through books of the Bible together. Therefore, I'm only going to preach to you what is in the text today. Our goal is going to be to ask, what does this text say? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Where does it fit within the broader scope of Scripture? So we do use other Scripture to help place, this, place the meaning of this text in Christian doctrine. I don't have the opportunity this morning to address everything there is, which is why we'll have another sermon next week on the future as we get into chapter five. Also, as far as parameters go, it's important for us to remind ourselves, and I, I do this occasionally here from the pulpit, and we do it every time we teach our monthly connect class, that we have a way of ordering doctrine in our church that keeps us a healthy congregation. There's first tier doctrines, which are doctrines that make someone a Christian, according to the scripture. There are second tier doctrines that really kind of make us who we are as Nansman River Baptist Church. And then there are third tier or tertiary doctrines, which are doctrines that you and I can disagree on. You can disagree with the person sitting next to you. We can all still go to church together be in small group together, be in Christian fellowship as a part of one church together. So let me state something clear from the outset. The, re- the physical bodily return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead, which Paul is addressing here in this passage, is a first tier doctrine. There is no salvation without believing that Jesus will return. There, There is no hope in this life if Jesus is not going to physically return and bodily resurrect the dead. If that is not true, what in the world are we doing here? This is just a group of people trying to go along to get along if we're not looking for something in the future that Jesus is going to do. Our, our worship pastor has led us this morning in singing about our future hope of resurrection, the return of Jesus, which is a first-tier Christian doctrine. However, the timing and nature of his return is not first-tier and should not be used to divide the church. So is Jesus going to return and is that something that all Christians must put their faith in because it is clearly taught in the scriptures? Yes. But are we going to squabble over when that's going to happen and what the order of events necessarily will be, even down to some of the details that I'll proclaim today? No, we won't because there have been varying interpretations of, of that within, throughout Christian history. Now intentionally last spring, knowing that I was going to be preaching this, I taught for four weeks on Wednesday nights in a series I called The End. And the goal of that was to give you a historic understanding of how the church has thought about numerous subjects, including the return of Christ, which we're talking about today, how the church has thought about that over the ages. I presented multiple positions and tried to do so fairly. And then every week, kind of gave my own, where I was in my own understanding and interpretation. This morning, that's what I've got to preach. I've got to preach my understanding. But you could go to Nanswinriver.com, go to the reach in section, and click on equip podcast, and in that podcast are all four of those things. So if you want to know the expanded version of this, and you weren't here last spring, go to the equip podcast on our website, and you can listen to it, and then I'm happy to answer questions or engage with you. But today my goal is to preach to you clearly what I believe Paul is saying here in these verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it begins with this, that there is hope found in the future resurrection. Look with me in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's clear because of where Paul includes this in the letter and the language that he uses here at the beginning that he is seeking to answer a question two weeks ago when we were in the previous passage. I told you where we're getting to a part of the letter where likely Timothy upon returning from from Thessalonica to Paul in Corinth brings some questions and then Paul seeks to address those questions. And it seems as if there was some question within the church about those who are in Christ who had died, that as the months had progressed from the time that Paul had proclaimed the gospel there in that city to now that he is writing this letter, some who believed had gone on. They have passed away. And the most likely concern for the church, judging by the context of what Paul writes here. Their most likely concern is that the dead in Christ would somehow miss out on or be disadvantaged in the return of Christ. So their concern, it seems as if, is not for themselves, but for their loved ones who have all gone on. Their concern is for the one who has professed faith in Jesus, but has experienced physical death. We've experienced some of this in the life of our church in the last few weeks as some in our church have gone on to be with the Lord. I'll preach another funeral for a dear member of our church on Tuesday. We have experienced great a great amount of death in our culture here recently. All of us have lost people in our lives and it is natural to ask this question. What's going to happen to them? And so... It seems as if that's the question that is being asked of Paul, and he hopes to offer some type of assurance, which is why he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. And then he says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the contrast that Paul is giving is for the other Gentile non-believers, the pagans that live in this city, who Paul would say grieve without hope. Now just quickly, why do they grieve without hope? To understand the religious framework of that day amongst pagan Gentiles in Roman culture. They believed people's destiny was set by the stars. And that what happened to you in life was kind of set by this mystical thing that aligned with your birth and it's driving you on to your death. And so there was really no hope that maybe some of those pagan gods could do something for you in life, but there was very little hope in death in Roman culture. And so Paul contrasts that and says, I don't want you to, grieve as those when you lose a loved one who is in Christ. I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope because there is great hope to be found when we lose a loved one who is in Christ. Now, I want us to skip to the end of this passage and see verse 18. Paul writes, after after Describing to us the resurrection of the dead and the return of Jesus, he then says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he begins this section by saying, don't grieve as those without hope. I'm going to tell you something that's going to give you great hope for those who are in Christ. He ends the section by reminding them that this is encouraging news and that they should regularly encourage one another with these words. So when someone's feeling down because they've lost a loved one, put this in context, when someone's feeling down because they've lost a loved one, they're grieving, Paul reminds the church, encourage one another, that there is great encouragement to be found. So any use of verses 14 through 17 outside of the clearly expressed intention of this passage to bring hope and encouragement would be a misuse of Paul's words. So let me just state it clearly for you. The point of this passage is hope. For those who are in Christ today, hear me, there is hope. This should be be an encouraging sermon. You should walk out of here today going, man, I am so glad I came this morning. Even in the midst of pandemic and great death in our culture today, we can look and say, there is phenomenal hope to be had in the future return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Let me just give one clarifying point for you. In three consecutive verses, verse 13, 14, and 15, Paul uses a phrase translated, those who are asleep are those who have fallen asleep. It's not until verse 16 that he refers to them as dead. Now, these are the same people. The, The people who have fallen asleep in verses 13, 14, and 15 are the same people who are dead in verse 16. Fallen asleep was a common euphemism of the day, Euphemism is, is a, a phrase used to describe something that's a little, uh, you don't necessarily want to say what it is. And, and so there was a common one of that day that was, they would describe dead people as being asleep. But it doesn't make them any less dead. And we do not need to base any kind of uh, doctrinal significance on the fact that Paul calls them asleep and not dead. It was just a phrase of the day. He is talking about those who are in Christ and are dead. He is not talking about those who are not in Christ. He's not talking about people who you you like, people who were kind, you know, your neighbor that helped you mow your grass when you were out of town. He's talking about people who had put their faith in Jesus and it is those who, it is the loved ones of those and the church surrounding those who find hope and encouragement. Second, the foundation of the future resurrection. Paul is going to give two foundations for this hope that we have in a future resurrection at the return of Jesus. The first is in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So here it is again, those who have fallen asleep are dead. If we work backwards, they're going to come with Jesus. God will bring him, Jesus, with those who have fallen asleep. And this is a professed belief of the church. For since we believe, Paul is recognizing a belief that the church has, that Jesus died and rose again. So the first foundation of the future resurrection is expressed in the belief of the church in the resurrection of Christ, that another essential doctrine, first-tier doctrine of the church of God is that Jesus was resurrected bodily, physically, his actual body, raised from the dead by the power of God. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not... whom." He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hear me clearly this morning, church. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope. No argument can be made for some spiritualized version of Jesus' resurrection that still saves sinners. It is only by the power of God that raised Jesus dead in the tomb from the grave that we can find hope. The resurrection from the dead of those in Christ into eternal life is entirely dependent upon the physical resurrection of Jesus. Paul tells us that clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 and appeals to that doctrine here in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And it is the one of the two foundational doctrines for us having hope in the resurrection of the dead. And that is that we believe, the church of God believes that Jesus died physically and rose again bodily so that one day God would would, would bring him back to earth with those who have fallen asleep. That's the first foundation. The second is found in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The second foundation that Paul appeals to is a teaching of Jesus himself. This is why he says at the beginning of verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. You must remember that this is being written a couple of decades after the crucifixion of Jesus. The New Testament is still very much being put together. Much of it has not even been written yet, especially the epistles have not been written yet. This was an early epistle of Paul. And so what's floating around the churches is is snippets, right? There's teachings of Jesus that are being passed on from the apostles to the churches as the gospel spread. And Paul is going to make an appeal to one of those teachings. So it seems as if we can rightly assume that one of the things that Paul had expressed to the church there in Thessalonica when he was with them was one of the teachings about Je- uh, one of the teachings of Jesus about his return and the resurrection of the dead. Likely, that teaching is the same thing that Matthew records in Matthew twenty-four. So let's think about what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-four. Because it's very much going to align with what Paul says in the remainder of this passage. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and if you're curious about the tribulation of those days, in one of those teachings I did back in the spring, I spent an entire Time talking about Matthew 24, walking us through Matthew 24. So you could go listen to that. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The power of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heavens, the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes on the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the cloud of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven, to the other. So this is the appeal that, that Paul makes likely because of what he is going to say in a minute that s- seems to clearly align and I'll show you those places as we go. In Matthew 24, his second foundation is not just the doctrine of the resurrection but the actual teachings of Jesus themselves. That Jesus had promised that he would return. And Jesus had promised that at his return the, of a bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, This may leave you asking because I think it's an important and I just want to deal with it quickly. So what happens in the interim period, right? If these people are, if God is causing these people going to return with Jesus, does that mean what they're with Jesus now? What hope can I have not only in the future, but what hope can I have now that my loved one in Christ is with God today? Second Corinthians chapter five, just quickly Paul addresses it. He says, yes, we are of good courage. We have hope, we have encouragement and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So let's just be really clear. Those who are in Jesus that die are with God now. This is why Paul is able to say that God will bring them back with Jesus because that is where they are. Not bodily though their spirit is with Jesus. And at the resurrection of the dead, their spirit will be made one again with their body. Listen, eternal life is not a spiritual thing. Eternal life is very much a physical thing, which is why the resurrection of the dead is important. So the spirits who are those who have gone on to be with the Lord, who have died in Christ, will return with him to be reunited with their body. Now, Here in verse 15 is probably the most important phrase for our understanding of this passage. And it can be easy for us to gloss over because it doesn't mean a whole lot to us outside of something that we would just regularly say within church. The middle phrase there of of verse 15 says, who are left, talking about those who will be alive when Jesus returns, until the coming of the Lord. Now we hear the coming of the Lord and all we think of is, oh, that's talking about when Jesus returns. And yes, it is absolutely talking about when Jesus returns. The Greek word for this, and I don't often tell you Greek words for this, but it's important for us to understand the context of what Paul is saying here. The Greek word for this is parousia. And this word means, the the phrase means a, a visiting, right? It's, it's the key phrase for this whole passage. It means an arrival. It was most often associated with the arrival of a dignitary to a city, even the emperor. So when the Caesar would go out into his empire and visit, it was known as a perusia. So Paul uses a word that's very common in Roman culture. that's talking about the visiting of a dignitary, even an emperor to describe the coming of the Lord. So when we approach the circumstances of the coming of the Lord and the future resurrection in these these next couple of verses, we must hear this word in the same way the original readers did and make our best effort at associating it in the same way. So we're talking about the coming of the Lord, which brings about this future resurrection where we find hope and encouragement. So what are the circumstances that Paul describes here of the future resurrection? Before I get into verse 16, let me just make something else clear. These aren't the only circumstances that will surround the coming of the Lord and the future resurrection, but they're the ones Paul mentioned, so they're the ones I'm going to preach, okay? So here we go, the beginning of verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this is the picture that Paul paints for us at the coming of the Lord, at his parousia, at, at this visitation, the arrival of God, Jesus Christ, returning to earth, three, he uses three prepositional phrases that give to us the circumstances that kind of announce his coming and surround his coming, right? So he's gonna descend from heaven, and he's going to do it with three things. The first is with a, with a cry of command. A cry of command is the first circumstance of the future resurrection. This is going to accompany the return of Jesus. Now, these things could very well happen, and I believe probably will, happen simultaneously. That this is all happening in an instant, all right? But the first is from heaven, there will be a cry of command. Now, what is this cry of command? Most likely this cry of command is the command for the dead to come out of their graves. This is why I think this is true. Listen to John chapter five. This is Jesus talking about the future resurrection. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has also granted the son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what is, I think, the most likely understanding of the cry of command that accompanies the descendant of the Lord from heaven is the cry of command that tells the dead to get up. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to get up. You say, can Jesus really do that? Yes, he can do it. And he demonstrated it to us while he was here on earth. In John chapter 11, we're told the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Jesus is in another city. He gets word that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus is like, I think instead of going to see my friend, I'm going to sit here for a few more days. This frustrated his disciples and it frustrated the family of Lazarus. Because by the time Jesus gets there, he's dead. Jesus mourns with them. He grieves with them. This is where we get the verse Jesus wept, right? Jesus expresses sorrow, but he also knows he's got the power to do something about it. And he goes over the tomb. And this is what we read in John 11, starting verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. So the cry of command here in 1 Thessalonians 4 really seems to be as if it's the same cry that is described to us in John 5. And on a personal level that Jesus used in John 11 to call Lazarus from the grave. So, when Jesus returns, there will be a cry from heaven that the dead will hear come out of their grave. The second, we're told, is a voice of an archangel. Now, the archangel is a common character in Old Testament and intertestamental period literature, particularly not always literature that is part of the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. The archangel is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, but he is, or they, there is actually more than one archangel in Hebrew literature. And it was a very common character, particularly in the period of time between the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. There's really only two mentions of the phrase archangel in the New Testament here and in the short epistle of Jude. And all we're told is that there will be another cry, a voice of an archangel. Now, we're not the archangel is not named, even though the most commonly named archangel is the angel Michael who is referred to in Revelation, so we could go with it's Michael, to be honest with you, it's not really going to matter. But there will be a there will be a voice of an archangel. This is the second circumstance that will surround the coming of Jesus and the resurrection. But if we think about what Paul has already referenced, the teaching of Jesus, which is the foundation of this passage, then maybe we can reconcile these things together is why is there a cry that seems to come from Jesus and then a separate command, a separate cry that seems to come from an archangel? Well, if we go back to Matthew 24, verse 31, we read, and he will send out his angels... He sends out his angels to accomplish his purpose. If he's sending out his angels to accomplish his purpose, wouldn't it seem as if that Paul could just be relating to us that the leader of the angels and I have, look, don't come to me like, what's the, you know, political structure of the angels? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's, don't ask that question. Okay, we just don't, I don't know. But we do get a sense at least that there is some type of hierarchical structure within the angel community. And when Jesus returns, their leader's going to say, go out. And the angels are going to go out and follow the instructions of Jesus and gather the elect together from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The third circumstance is a trumpet. Paul tells us in that verse with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this isn't just any trumpet. This is the trumpet of God. In Matthew 24, 31, we see that same thing. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. So again, simultaneously, here is the Lord raising the dead, the angels receiving their command to go and gather the elect, and the trumpet of God sounding trumpets in Roman culture. And even predating that throughout all of antiquity, trumpets accompanied something important. They told you when something important had happened, they would have always been blown during a parousia. We've always been blown when a dignitary, even an emperor himself would have made his presence in a certain place. And here it is the trumpet of God that blows. Now, without wading too deep in these waters, let me just say something as as I approach this passage. There is absolutely nothing in this passage that gives us any indication that this is secret at all. This very much sounds as if everyone on earth will know when it's happening, which is part of the encouragement here because one of the misunderstandings that the church at Thessalonica had made was that possibly they had missed it. We'll deal with this a little bit more next week when we deal with the timing of the return of Jesus. The, the idea was that they maybe had missed it. Maybe Jesus had returned and, and they didn't know about it. Could you imagine missing this? A global command for the dead to rise, the voice of the archangel commanding the angels of God and the trumpet of God blowing? This will be anything but secret. And no, God's not gonna need to rely on television and satellites and your iPhone. When God does this, everyone to the deepest, darkest regions in the world will know of it because it is the trumpet of God and the command of his son, Jesus Christ, and the voice of the archangel that declares this is time. And then what happens at the end of verse 16? And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is what Paul's saying to them. Again, remember, maybe, maybe some confusion has slipped in and they've thought Jesus has, had arisen. Listen, this is also an encouragement to us. If the dead are still in their graves, Christ has not re- returned yet. And this resolves the most likely concern the church had about the dead in Christ, that they had somehow missed out on something that the dead in Christ were going to miss out on this this visiting from Jesus, this return of Jesus, that the dead were gonna miss it. And Paul says, no, they're actually gonna miss it. They're gonna come with him and their bodies are gonna rise before you do. They actually get a front row seat to it. They get to go first. Then what happens after that? Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Now it's the living who are caught up. Now it's the living who go to meet Jesus in the air. For those of you that are looking for the term rapture in the Bible, number one, you're not gonna find it because it's not there. Second, the closest is here because the word caught up is translated in the English Bible, but we get the word rapture from a transliteration of the Latin word for this. So this is the, the catching up The meeting in the air of the church of God, both dead and alive, with Jesus, bodily resurrection, in the clouds, we're told. So first, we need to ask why. why. Why are we going up to meet him? Because this, again, is a parousia. And this is following the custom of the parousia. The people in the city, when a dignitary come, would not sit in the city and wait Those who were expecting him would go outside of the city to greet the arriving dignitary and escort them back in. It's like when someone important comes and visits your house. You don't sit on the sofa when they arrive. What do you do? You go outside to meet them. When my children's grandparents come to visit, what do they do? When they see the car run up, they run out to the street. This is what's being described for us. Jesus is gonna come back and give us the power to do, you know what? To run into the clouds to meet him. We are going to, if we are left bodily, we will run into the clouds, chasing after the dead in Christ who have, run, who have gone first to meet Jesus specifically in the clouds. Now, why in the clouds? First, because Jesus said he would come in the clouds. Again, Matthew 24 Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes on earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So again, everybody sees it. And where's Jesus? He's in the clouds. So Jesus says he would be in the clouds. Not only that, but the angel of God who comes to the disciples at the ascension of Jesus also promises he'll be in the clouds. Acts one eleven. then will appear in the heavens. Sorry, that's not, that's not what, that says, hold on, I want to return to it. I messed it up in my notes. Could you imagine how much longer my sermons would be if I had to turn, that's why I put them all in my notes. I know. So, right, so the disciples are there and they're looking up, they're staring up for Jesus. They're like, uh-oh, Jesus is gone. And And, an angel comes, like she two two men stood by them in white robes, these are angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what's happening? Jesus has gone up, Jesus says, I'm coming on the clouds. The angels say to the disciples immediately after the ascension of Jesus, He's coming in heaven. But it's not just these white fluffy clouds that we're picturing because that's what we all picture. Let's just be honest. That's what we're picturing right now. And if all we see is the accumulation of water vapor in the sky, we've missed it. Because this is describing something far more than just clouds. Because clouds, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament and events like the transfiguration of Jesus, clouds represent the glory of God. In Daniel chapter seven, where we see, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and, and a kingdom to the, that all people, nations and languages should serve his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus coming in majesty and glory. This is what the cloud is. In the Old Testament, the cloud is the glory of God. So when Jesus comes in the cloud, listen, the first time Jesus came, the first time he visited, stable, manger, dirty animals in a little backwoods village, in a little backwoods country, in a little corner of the earth. The second time he comes, in all his majesty and glory. And all of the tribes and nations of the world will see it and hear it and know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has returned. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are left will run behind them to meet him in the air so that we will be with him. So what? Do I have the hope that comes only through faith in the future resurrection ensured by the resurrection of Christ? Remember, this passage is about hope and encouragement today. So, our point of application must be about hope, and it's a direct question to you Is this where you find future hope? If all of the world were to crumble around this Christian, we should still have hope and encouragement. If everything around us were to pass away and we were to have nothing else to cling to in this world, we should still be able to look at one another and say, be of good cheer, fellow brother and sister in Christ, because Jesus is coming back for us. We have hope. But I ask this today because there may be someone here who does not have this hope. Maybe you're hoping on something else to save you. Maybe you're not convinced by this. Understand something. There is either hope in Jesus Christ or there is eternal damnation separated from him. And either your death or his return will mark that defining moment in your life. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, where again he ties his return to encouragement and hope. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Be encouraged, find hope, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Hear me clearly, friend. Yes, this is a sermon of great hope and encouragement, but if you are outside of Christ, this is the sermon for you to understand that Jesus is the only way to that hope. He paid for that way in his own blood. It was sealed in a garden tomb where he was resurrected by the power of God and he will one day come again You may say, well, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come back yet. Well, in the plan of God, that just means we're 2,000 years closer to the event. And our hope doesn't change whether that event is tomorrow or another 2,000 years from now. I don't tie my hope to the return of Jesus to it being in my lifetime. Too many people have done that. We've been so concerned with the return of Jesus being in our lifetime that we've tied our hope to that. Separate your hope from from that and recognize that if you were to die today, Christian, you would go to be with God. And one day, your spirit would return with Him and be reunited at the resurrection of the dead, bodily to live with Him for all eternity. And if we're left when that happens, we will meet you in the clouds with Jesus. Question for you, friend Do you have that hope today? If you don't, put your faith in Jesus alone, who is the way to God. And not only A A way, he is the way for us to have eternal hope and eternal life in the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope that you grant to us who do not deserve it, who have not earned it, but have received it as a free gift of God so that no man can boast, knowing down in the core of our souls that no matter what befalls us in this life, resurrection awaits us. Future hope meeting you in the air and living for all eternity because you sealed that hope for us by your death and resurrection. I pray, God, that we would cling to that hope as the people of God that we would know it and believe it and live it and we would not cling to anything else in this world but that hope alone for the lost listening to this, for the one who is without hope, let them put their faith in Jesus Christ, bring new life into them. Let them believe today we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen.